Hello, and welcome to the African Podcast. I'm Rebecca Tripp, and today I have AJ Carter joining me today. So AJ, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. So why don't we start off with you quickly introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you currently do. Sure. Thank you. Um, so uh, my name is AJ um, uh, Carter. Uh, I'm uh, Indo-Canadian Kiwi, uh, originally from uh, Toronto, uh, well, Etobicoke and uh, Mississauga, um, the GTA. Uh, I'm a lawyer by trade. Um, have uh, specialized my practice um, in public policy and governance. Um, what that means is um, that I'm an advisor to the government of day um, currently in New Zealand. Um, I worked for the state government uh, in Queensland, Australia, um, and now I'm working for the federal government, um, uh, the government of New Zealand. Um, currently, uh, my title is Senior Strategic Advisor um, at the Office of the Ombudsman, um, which is an agency appointed um, um, by the New Zealand Parliament. Uh, so currently, um, in my position, we're independent of the government. Um, however, we're investigating um, on a day-to-day -day, uh, the conduct of um, government agencies, members of parliaments, public service agencies, a total of around 4,000 um, agencies in total in New Zealand. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, and while uh, doing that, uh, I'm living in the capital um, of New Zealand, which is Wellington, um, with my lovely wife, Monica, and our little puppy, Hope. Um, so much like uh, most people in Wellington, um, we're both career public servants, um, and uh, we quite enjoy it here. That's wonderful. I can't wait to to dive into to your career. It sounds so interesting. Um, so we met through Kendra Jolly, who's a, a person I did um, a podcast interview with earlier. Um, and the three of us actually completed the paralegal program at Fleming College at, at different times. Um, so before I dive into your very impressive career in law, um, can you start off by kind of walking me through um, how you first decided to to pursue a career in law and how you landed on like the paralegal program at Fleming College. Absolutely, and thank you for the kind words. Um, um, definitely um, very humble beginnings, um, as to say. Uh, so I come from um, um, a family where um, we've got my brother's a police officer as well as uh, my uncle. Um, he was a um, high-ranking police official as well. Um, so obviously the uh, interest in law enforcement was always there um, in uh, terms of uh, criminal justice, um, especially. Um, so that's something that I pursued um, uh, in my, um, uh, just after um, I finished high school. Um, so I've completed my law enforcement foundations uh, diploma at um, Windsor um, in Ontario, yeah. um, where um, one of the modules being criminal law um, and um, the mock trial, and especially um, the um, um, the arraignment process, the bail process, um, and the um, uh, the submission of arguments. That's something that immediately struck my interest. Mm -hmm. um, as such, um, so I finished uh, the program. Uh, while going into that program, my intention being um, one to be a law enforcement professional, a police officer. Um, but um, that's something that um, uh, took me by surprise where I um, uh, decided to pursue uh, further studies in the law. Uh, and that's how I ended up at uh, Fleming College. Um, that's something that um, continued to stay with me um, as I uh, went through my um, 
uh, studies and my career, uh, it kind of snowballed into a passion for the rule of law um, and especially the application thereof. Um, it was um, it was at Fleming College actually um, where um, uh, when doing my paralegal studies um, diploma when I met the staff uh, for the first time, um, Diana Collis, um, the program leader, um, as well as Bob Bridges, um, some uh, some very impressive names in um, uh, not only Peterborough but um, Ontario. Um, yeah. courts of justice, um, where, um, um, you know, the um, the principles of trial advocacy and uh, criminal law were something that became ingrained in me after mm -hmm. a while. Um, it also helped that um, the show Suits was the highest grossing uh, show at the time. Yeah. Um, and everyone um, kind of idolized uh, Harvey Specter, um, where um, I used to be called uh, Mike Ross. Um, at one point as well, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it uh, it was just that combination where um, uh, my interest was piqued in the law um, and the uh, paralegal program being a condensed two-year program at uh, Sir Sanford Fleming, um, being the perfect opportunity for me to dive into and explore that world. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think really highly of the Fleming um, paralegal program as well. I feel like it's it's the start for a lot of people's really interesting careers. So, yeah, that's it awesome. It really is. Yeah. Um, so after graduating from Fleming, you transferred to Royal Rose University. And looking at your your LinkedIn profile, because I was checking you out in preparation for this this interview, you've really continued your learning since then. So, what can you tell us about the the transfer process, and um, what are all the programs that you've completed? Look, uh, to be honest, the finishing up um, my paralegal studies with a bachelor's that was never part of the plan. Um, it was just um, the icing on the cake, is to say. Um, when um, I was awarded the College Transfer Inference Award for transferring to Royal Roads University, um, mm -hmm. that helped cement that decision. Um, the ties between Sir Sanford Fleming and uh, Royal Roads Uni um, over in uh, British Columbia, um, it, it made the whole process very streamlined. Um, the staff basically um, was on a first name basis uh, with me um, at one point. I felt welcome and part of the Royal Roads community um, even before starting there, just because of how good the relations were between our staff at Fleming um, and over at Royal Roads. Um, there was emails on a daily basis um, about the student experience, what they could do to help me, um, phone calls. Obviously, this is um, um, this is the time before Zoom um, became mainstream. Um, yeah. But it's a perfect case study, uh, in my opinion, for technological advances uh, being used to um, uh, being used to better um, communication between um, not only students and faculty, but in general society. Uh, this was back in 2013, so I imagine today the process would be even more streamlined with um, um, with campus visits being able to be undertaken by video, um, yeah. you know, by meeting faculty members face to face in um, by um, the use of video technology and such. Um, so the move to British Columbia across the country, it was just a matter of um, putting a face to the name as to say, and um, um, as the kids are saying these days, IRL, uh, meeting people in real life. Um, so it was that combination of um, circumstances that's, uh, um, that saw me at Royal Roads. Um, that being said, once I started there, um, I was I was thoroughly impressed with the caliber of 
not only the staff that taught there, they came from all across the globe um, with a whole mix of different um, sort of specializations in fields of the law. Um, mm -hmm. So we were able to not only um, learn from them, but also reflect upon their life experiences in different countries, in different jurisdictions. Um, and some of them not even uh, uh, not even um, common law jurisdictions, where it was a civil law um, jurisdiction in Germany uh, that we were learning about. Uh, there was a lot of exchange students. Um, and to be honest, it was um, a combination of some of the best young critical thinkers um, that I stay in touch um, and contact with to this day. Um, and that included two Fleming graduates um, that um, ended up there, including myself. Um, and then I ended up uh, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts um, in uh, Justice Studies um, from Royal Roads. Um, and since then, um, I've um, uh, finished that uh, transfer process, uh, completed my bachelor's. I ended up um, uh, doing a uh, Juris Doctor at um, Bond University in uh, Queensland, Australia, mm -hmm. um, being the only um, law school outside of Canada at the time um, that um, taught um, and specialized in Canadian law and practice um, mm -hmm. with the trimester system as compared to two trimesters domestically. Um, in two years, you graduated with um, um, a degree, a higher level degree um, in both Australian law and Canadian law, and you could practice um, in both uh, jurisdictions. Um, the appeal was there, um, and you can see easily why uh, that was um, very appealing. Um, and coincidentally, that happened to be um, the last year before the um, National Council of Accreditation for Canada for um, um, law schools, um, people who are law graduates from overseas, um, getting, gaining admission back into Canada. Mm -hmm. um, that was the last year that um, that was uh, uh, being allowed with a streamlined process. Um, it's all record number of Canadians um, attend school at uh, Bond University Faculty of Law. On that subject, um, they still to this day, um, and again, uh, just like yourself, I was um, researching um, this yesterday as well. Um, it's still to this day, a very active Canadian Law Student Association um, at Bond University. It's the biggest association on campus um, where I eventually um, um, ended up serving as the social director in my last year as well. Um, I ended up with a specialization in criminal law um, in general, as well as um, in Canadian law and practice. So um, as you can see, and you alluded to Rebecca, is I like to learn. I, I continued that journey. Um, I finished with a postgrad diploma in legal practice, um, noting that something um, they're um, quite fondly or not so fondly called professionals, um, which is your professional legal training for admission to um, uh, to the legal profession in um, uh, in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's a requirement for admission. Um, and as such, um, I, I completed that program as well. Um, in terms of my specialization, um, I um, um, ended up completing a postgrad certificate in public policy um, at the um, uh, Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, um, where I focused on public policy um, and e-government, which is the um, the advent of government in the digital age. Uh, so it's a very niche topic. Um, it's very topical, however, and it's something um, um, going into the future that will be very, very relevant 
um, where um, um, it's it's evident um, in some of the Scandinavian countries how we can um, use technology and leverage it um, to the benefit of um, public service. And most recently, um, I've um, I've taken an active interest and in, uh, completed uh, studies in artificial intelligence in um, society and business. Um, so that's something that um, continues to be ongoing for me. Um, I'm uh, researching the use of artificial intelligence in the law and decision making, which is um, um, something to be stay stay tuned for, <laughs> as to say. What an educational journey. Um, if there's anything you could, like looking back now, if there's anything that you could have done differently, like, is there anything, you know, that you would have changed now that you have, you know, hindsight's 2020? Hindsight is definitely 2020. Um, but um, yeah, looking back, I think everything kind of fell into place um, quite nicely. And I do need to um, uh, acknowledge that and thank the opportunities that presented themselves to me, as well as the people who supported me um, yeah. along the way, including some amazing faculty members, mm -hmm. some amazing staff members, um, and of course, my friends and family um, as well. Um, without their support, um, obviously, I would not be here um, where I am today. Um, but that being said, um, I don't think there's much I would change. Um, I think this journey has brought me here, um, and it's given me such a depth of experience across various jurisdictions and various lines of work um, where I eventually found my niche. Um, and um, um, going forward as well, uh, that's something that um, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to evolve with the times. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And, and something you said earlier um, that when you went to uh, law school, it was like the dual pro program where like you would get licensed in both New Zealand and Canada. So at that time, did you not have to do any like transfer exams or was that just like an automatic you were um, licensed in, in Canada as well? Yeah, so um, so the way it worked um, at the time, uh, this is in Queensland, Australia, yep. um, where um, um, and in Australia, there's just by a bit of background, there's um, so you've got your states kind of parallel to the Canadian system, where we've got the provinces um, independently um, administrating their um, procedures on how to admit um, lawyers to the bar. Um, so in Queensland, um, after the completion of um, a Juris Doctor degree, which is a higher degree, um, which is a second degree, um, you um, um, you complete uh, what is known as your professionals, which is the postgrad diploma in legal practice. Um, you pick a specialization in a field of law, um, and then you pick a specialization um, in um, um, in a particular area of that field, um, if you would um, like to, or you can generalize as well. Um, and then you're admitted to the bar. Um, in Queensland. Um, and with uh, the reciprocity uh, um, across the country, uh, you can get admitted to any other um, state as well. How this translated back into um, uh, going back to Canada is um, at the time, um, the National Council of Accreditation required you to complete, because it's a common law jurisdiction, both in Australia, New Zealand, England, um, if you study overseas, um, you've completed those common law subjects. And if you've completed them to the NCA satisfaction by achieving a certain um, um, threshold um, of a grade, um, you are uh, considered to be competent um, in those subjects. Where the complication comes into play is um, you need to be 
um, if you're going to be practicing in Canada, you need to know Canadian law. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got those five specialized subjects um, that are that comprise of the Canadian law and practice, um, which is where Bond Uni um, with the Canadian law program um, offered those um, uh, those courses at the uni itself um, instead of having to take. Um, so you get a choice of five electives um, in your degree. Um, however, the Canadian students, you can choose to use those five subjects as the Canadian law and practice subjects. Mm -hmm. So you study Canadian criminal law, Canadian civil law, um, you've got um, procedures, laws of evidence. Um, so you study all those subjects at Bond University um, at the time, obviously. Um, I'm not sure what the structure is at the moment. Yeah. Um, however, I, by the fact of um, um, having studied those subjects and passed those subjects above a certain uh, percentage, uh, you're taken to be competent in those subjects. So you go back to Canada, you apply to the National Council of Accreditation, um, and they assess your application. They may require you to do an ethics course. I believe that was mandatory for everyone at the time as well, uh, and it still is. Um, so you complete that course. You've been taught by Canadian professors at a Canadian um, faculty of law. Um, despite it being overseas, it's recognized. It was recognized by the um, uh, National Council um, at the time, um, and um, a very streamlined process um, that basically saw you spend an extra six to eight months, um, basically waiting for those exams um, if um, you haven't scored um, enough to the um, NCA's um, satisfaction. Um, then um, you're writing those exams and you're getting admitted uh, to a Canadian jurisdiction. It's uh, yeah. it's unfortunate that um, it's changed, and and I can see why. Like I, I understand why, but um, how beneficial to be a part of such a streamlined, direct um, pathway. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I I can see why you don't have any regrets with <laughs> with how your educational <laughs> journey uh turned out because what an opportunity yeah that's right and a lot of it has to do with um luck as well is that coincidental um last batch um that we ended up uh, being a part of um and just like i was saying earlier a record number of canadian students we had over 200 canadian students we had that was the biggest group on campus yeah. you know so um that was something that um, um that actually ended up being a very um, very patriotic thing at the end of the day where you've got your bunch of people in a different country, you're representing the country and you're bringing that culture to um, to the locals of that place. Um, and we had um, we had quite a few um, um, domestic students who always looked forward to events that we hosted um, as Canadians. They knew us as the Canadians um, who are um, on exchange or um, studying uh, as foreign students, but uh, definitely um, something where um, um, we had an opportunity to present um, Canada and, um, uh, and promote a little bit of Canadian culture as well. So switching gears a bit, what has your career looked like since graduation? It has been a few. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Um, so um, I got admitted to the as it was called at the time, the Law Society of uh, Upper Canada, mm -hmm. um, which uh, is now Ontario, um, with a P1 license, um, obviously after finishing my um, uh, parallel legal studies at uh, Sir Sanford Fleming. Um, I was placed at um, a law firm in Peterborough um, and Oshawa, uh, Aiken Robertson, 
um, where um, um, Richard Aiken um, as my mentor. Uh, I was hired on full time um, by the firm um, and um, part time while I was studying. Um, this um, is at a time where um, um, work from home or remote working, it was an absolutely foreign concept. Um, it was not um, uh, not very mainstream, as to say. Um, but uh, that was something that um, I um, I was able to do while I was in British Columbia studying, um, or when I was in Australia studying as well. Um, again, that's an experience that helped me discover uh, my passion for the rule of law. Um, it kind of just snowballed into it from there. Um, yeah, so I worked um, with uh, Aiken Robertson remotely um, till I completed my studies in Australia and a little bit um, further after that as well, because um, the idea um, was to return to um, Canada um, after completing my studies. However, um, as um, um, as you can see, um, life's taken a different turn and um, ended up in a very um, different situation to originally planned. Um, but um, basically, after my Juris Doctor um, in Queensland, um, I um, did my professional legal training at, um, at a um, um, large um, legal firm in Southport in Queensland. Um, and then I was successful in obtaining a position after that um, as a prosecutor for the um, Queensland government. Um, so just by means of um, background real quick, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, the system is a little bit different um, um, to Canada, where um, the police are responsible for bringing uh, criminal prosecutions around 90, 95% plus prosecutions are brought forth by the police um, as the charging authority, um, as um, um, contrasting with Canada, where prosecutions are um, uh, recommended by the police, where they're brought forth by the Attorney General's office um, and the relevant um, bodies in the uh, relevant province. Um, but here in Australia and New Zealand, um, we've got uh, police who have a hybrid function in both law enforcement and legal advisors um, as well. So um, how that works is that the police have in-house solicitors um, and barristers. Um, who are prosecutors for the state government. Um, so I was contracted by the Queensland Police, um, appointed as a criminal prosecutor for the state, um, which made for some of my most exciting career stories as well, and some of the some of the saddest ones at the same time. Um, but um, basically, um, um, for a couple of years, I um, uh, conducted unsupervised prosecutions of uh, criminal and civil, civil matters um, across um, uh, the magistrate's courts in uh, Queensland. Um, and also in children's court, which is a specialized court um, in Queensland um, as well. Um, unfortunately, the rates of domestic violence um, um, increasing over time uh, in the last um, uh, 10 or so years, um, even more than before, um, that saw me um, um, being involved in a pilot program for uh, domestic violence intervention um, as um, a specialized prosecutor um, with the Queensland um, uh, Magistrate's Court, and that's in, especially with um, children involved. Um, so um, the high-risk youth court um, is um, the pilot program for Queensland prosecutions where um, I saw uh, advocating on behalf of the state, um, acting not only for the state, but also um, acting holistically with defense, with um, community justice agencies, um, with the offenders' families as well, um, and a lot of times there's um, there's 
there's other um, care workers involved and um, uh, organizations that um, end up um, having a relevant interest um, as stakeholders at the table. Uh, so something working with the community for the eventual betterment um, and um, reducing the rate of crime um, as the long-term goal, obviously uh, it being a very complicated um, uh, process from the beginning to the end. And a lot of times you don't get to see the end um, because it's so far out. Um, but the, the, that's something that um, I really enjoyed um, uh, being um, uh, my time um, in Queensland. Um, at the end of my appointment, um, I um, when my contract ended, I made the move to New Zealand. Um, I got admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand. Um, I was granted another exciting opportunity here um, where um, uh, I joined Immigration New Zealand um, as a border um, as a border operations uh, technical specialist. Um, because of the nature of my work um, at INZ, I had to undergo um, training and warranted um, as a border officer um, in order to um, achieve the required um, prerequisites for the position. Um, basically, I oversaw um, border staff decisions for reasonableness and ensuring they're legally defendable. Um, I was delegated to uh, make decisions on behalf of the Minister of Immigration on border entry, authorized grants of special directions um, for those people who are inadmissible because of criminality um, or whatever reason, um, deportations, all stuff you see on Border Patrol, the TV show. In fact, I did um, make a very quick appearance as well last year uh, on um, local television for Border Patrol New Zealand. Um, wow. Of course, um, this, uh, yeah, it was, um, of course, this didn't go quite as planned with um, COVID um, coming into um, the mix. Um, and the first time in history we saw uh, the border of New Zealand um, closed off. Um, and that's um, that's basically where we are today. So you were working in the, the public se sector in New Zealand um, all through COVID. And I believe I can I can say with confidence that the whole world was watching um, how New Zealand dealt with COVID, um, how they quickly locked down and then really thrived throughout COVID. Um, so what was it like being on the, the government side of the pandemic? That's a, that's a brilliant question. Um, I had both the pleasure and the pain of being not only uh, a New Zealand government official um, during COVID, uh, but also working for the border. Um, so it was, it was quite surreal um, while the whole country waited in silence um, I can recall 1 p.m. every day um, where the news um, was coming out um, of uh, the number of cases, the developments of the government, the whole country watched um, in silence um, and fondly called it uh, Jacinda mania, um, referring to uh, the Right Honourable uh, Ms. Ardern as uh, the Prime Minister, um, taking the, um, the lead and uh, leading by example. Uh, during this crisis. Uh, behind the scenes, um, I'd say uh, it was the first time in history um, that uh, the border of New Zealand was closed off. It was it was a very, um, very surreal experience. Um, I ended up uh, being entrusted to co-author the operationalization of this uh, COVID-19 border closure. It saw me quickly um, um, 
have a combination of the operational side of things and the frontline side of things yeah. um, quickly bring it together. Um, I ended up being at the Auckland Airport, um, which is the busiest airport in New Zealand. It's a hub to the Pacific um, and to Australia. Um, conducting assessment of basically the health presence um, and practices at the border. Um, I will never forget interacting with some of the uh, visa holders and working holiday um, visa holders who were coming in to New Zealand at the time with their plans for self-isolation, um, people um, being in denial of um, the nature of the pandemic. Um, and at the same time, some people coming home for the first time after years because they were scared. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that was that atmosphere of being absolutely terrified. Um, but that was something that, you know, we were inventing the plane as we flew it, um, as, as the saying goes. Um, I basically ended up taking the lead um, on the managed isolation and quarantine policy drafting as well um, for immigration. Um, and the Immigration Border Operations Unit um, operationalization um, as well. Um, we had to redesign the New Zealand passenger arrival card, things like that. A lot was happening behind the scenes. Um, so the drafting of that COVID-19 related border and immigration policy, that's something that I was heavily involved in from even before the pandemic hit um, New Zealand's shore. And just like I was saying earlier, um, this was the first time that the Ministry of Health was present at the border. Um, it was not only a necessity at that stage um, and still today, um, but it was a reality for time to come. Um, I was asked to help um, provide support and help set up um, the Ministry of Health's Border Operations Unit uh, and eventually ended up uh, being seconded as a senior advisor to the ministry um, as well, where I worked with uh, leading um, um, health professionals and uh, the Director General of Health um, as well. Um, and ended up um, taking the lead again on uh, the quarantine-free travel zone when the time came to open the travel bubble, as it was called, um, between New Zealand and Australia. Obviously, again, in, uh, in true um, COVID fashion, the quarantine-free travel um, plan went down south real quick as well uh, when the Delta variant um, came on through. Um, it was a team of around 12 people uh, from Immigration New Zealand um, who ended up going to Australia um, around less than 12 hours notice uh, from myself, but um, it was to bring New Zealanders back from Australia. Um, so there's there's quite a few um, New Zealanders, um, over a million New Zealanders, I believe, who are in Australia, who live in Australia because of the Trans-Tasman Agreement, mm -hmm. because of the free trade, kind of like um, Canada and US, mm -hmm. where the two countries share a special bond and um, there's somewhat free um, movement between um, of uh, people between the two countries. Um, obviously, this being something that um, was not foreseeable, um, how long it would go, a lot of people decided to come home to their families. Um, so that was something where um, a announcement uh, was going to be made the next day uh, by the Prime Minister. Um, and we saw ourselves um, on the plane. Um, myself, I had a 5am flight um, where I checked in at around 2 in the morning. Um, not much sleep, obviously. Um, but um, yeah, in around seven days, um, the border would be closed. And we brought back around 11,000 New Zealanders um, in that last week. Um, it, was a, it was a very uh, tiring effort, but um, I was the last passenger on the last flight coming back from Brisbane. 
um, I might as well have said uh, shut it down and walked away. Um, but um, yeah, that was that was something that, um, to be honest, um, the answer to your question, it was an honor and a privilege, really, um, to be part of such such a big effort. Um, the um, the phrase used um, locally in New Zealand is the um, uh, quote unquote team of five million, um, and that's something that um, that rings true to me even to this day. Um, I've had the pleasure of working closely with uh, some of the biggest names um, in New Zealand government. I've been humbled by the um, the demeanor of everyone across the public service during these times. Um, we worked tirelessly, we clocked way more hours than we were supposed to. Um, driving through those police checkpoints first thing in the morning when the whole country is in lockdown, when there's a curfew, um, you've got an authorization letter stuck onto the windshield of your car. Seeing the empty streets devoid of any life, it, it was heartbreaking. You know, um, it was it was parallel to nothing I had seen before, um, and especially seeing um, the people of um, you know a country where um, the fabric of society itself is based on the premise that you know you look after your neighbor. Um, that was something that. Um, a lot of people never got used to, um, even to this day. Um, but you know what? It was it was for the greater good at the end of the day. And um, to see a country come together, unite um, the social cohesion side of things, it was something that, again, I'd never seen um, before. Every single person was doing their part. It was moving to the core um, for me to um, witness and be part of um, as part of the government um, uh, response. Uh, and this is especially true, I'd say, in the context of a very small country in the Pacific, um, being New Zealand, people look up to your uh, public officials. There is a very high level of trust in the government. Um, and that's evidenced by the fact that New Zealand ranks in the top few countries, if not one of the best, for um, ratings in democracy, the public trust in the government, in officials. That's a, that's a very high motivation. Um, as a public servant to do the right thing at the end of the day. It's the least you can do. You go above and beyond for your fellow New Zealanders. Um, so everyone started um, saying kia kaha, which means stay safe, stay strong. And the team of 5 million, it really was a team to this day. And you know what, there, there's a few eggs at the end of the day who let the team down occasionally. It happens, but the fact remains that the team is strong. You know, it was the word being thrown around was unprecedented um, at the time. Um, it was unprecedented. These levels um, we'd never seen before. Uh, it brought society together like never before at the same time as well. And as a civilian as well, we felt safe. We felt at home while we were in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and in, in sports terminology, um, as they say, I got a really big team and we need some really big rings. Um, so, you know, um, that team uh, mentality uh, is what made it home uh, during that time, despite being on the government side, as to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been really interesting over the last two years, um, looking at COVID and, and what has happened. And I think you make a very good point talking about democracy. And um, it, it does make a big difference when the population trusts the, the government. I think it makes a really big difference. And 
from from my interests of you know I really enjoy immigration law and international relations and and understanding what's going on around the world I kept a close eye on New Zealand and I just found it so fascinating how um and I, I don't remember when it was in the pandemic but there was a time where you were able to open up a bit because you had that bubble and you you really locked down your borders and people were like freely moving and it was like how amazing would that have been if in going back to democracy if everyone could just you know agree on something <laughs> as you may have seen with Ontario there has been a lot of like debate back and forth and different perspectives and that's what you'll get with with any population right there's always two sides um but I just I really admired what was going on in New Zealand and I am just so honored to be able to talk to you and and listen to what happened from from the inside and you know government policy I think some people forget sometimes especially with the pandemic like it was saving lives and I'm sure, you know, the overtime that you did and the the time and effort of, you know, really diving into what's best for, you know, your team of 5 million, um, it saved lives. And I think that's something that we all have to remember is that, and I think that's what all governments are trying to do, really, is what is best for, for the whole population. Um, so yeah, as someone from the outside that wasn't in New Zealand, I can say that I, I, you know, you really, New Zealand really led the way, I think, as to how, how should we be dealing with the pandemic and how do we keep the death rate? Cause that's what it was, the death rate, um, low. So, um, yeah, that's an incredible story. And I, I feel like this this episode is going to be, you know, something I'm going to go back to because we've been living in the pandemic for the last two years. It's not over yet. It, it's still happening. No. Um, but I think it's really important to understand where we've come from and, and what's happened to understand where we're going. Um, so thank you for um, all your detail in, in explaining um, what, what at least you were able to be a part of. Um, yeah, so thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So um, switching gears a little bit, uh, what advice do you have for other lawyers and even paralegals, as you were a paralegal for a while, um, that might be listening and considering switching into the public sector? That's a really good question. Um, it's as someone who um, has acted as a paralegal, who's um, eventually ended up uh, going on to be a lawyer in private practice and then moved on to the public sector, um, I'm not going to lie. It's going to be it's going to be a very thankless job um, most days uh, in the public service, and um, there's going to be a lot of long days, a lot of long nights, and that's especially um, in the current climate um, where there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, there's no safety net of you know, um, you've got an economy that's um, um, that's functioning normally, as to say, quote unquote. Um, you've got unprecedented times where there is a lot of pressure economically, as well as um, from society in general, um, where um, the government is um, a lot of times portrayed as the bad guy um, by um, uh, by a certain um, number of members of the public. Um, so it's it's um, it's it's tough. Um, especially compared to most private gigs where um, you've got great visibility, um, you've got control over um, what work you um, are working on. 
um, in the public service, you're in the public eye um, constantly. Anything you do is scrutinized. That's especially the case in a smaller country like New Zealand. Um, you're having a drink at the local pub with your mates and um, you look over and um, you've got the Director General of Health um, right there having a drink uh, at the next table. Um, so with the public service, um, um, I'd say in my experience, you're always on your toes. You're always scanning the current political climate, um, not out of fear or anything, um, because it directly affects your work. Um, say, for instance, there's a public announcement by the Minister of Defense um, that we're sending an extraction mission to Afghanistan. Um, a message is immediately sent out, um, brace for impact within our team. Um, two of us will be drafting briefings. Two of us will be operationalizing. Two of us will be undertaking legal risk analysis. And 20 staff that you're managing suddenly have to do their part and they're called upon to go serve. Um, this of course, is actually a true story uh, when I ended up being the um, liaison um, from Immigration New Zealand to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, last year when the Afghanistan um, extraction mission um, was happening, obviously, um, um, on the policy side of things. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it keeps you on your toes. Um, but again, at the time, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but it keeps it exciting um, at the end of the day. It's very rewarding. Um, the gratitude from the members of the public, um, from victims, if you're in criminal justice, from constituents in your locality, whatever it may be, you can't put a price on that, in my opinion. Um, you're entrusted, um, and that's going back to the uh, concept of trust um, in the government and public officials um, that we enjoy not only in New Zealand, but also in Canada um, and even in Australia. Um, so we've got some countries with a um, very high level of track record in um, maintaining democracy um, and having that openness and transparency um, and that level of fairness. Um, so you're entrusted not only by your public leaders who are um, your managers and your staff members, but also by citizens, you know, as a role model, um, you sleep at night knowing that you've done all the right things. Um, it's not for everyone. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but that's exactly what makes it so special, in my opinion, is that public sectors um, got some of the best, some of the most resilient people I've met, um, people who get stuff done when the going gets tough, you know? Um, no one asks twice um, whether they need to um, go work on something. Um, they, they're just up and at it um, type thing. And I've seen this happen a lot of times, especially in the last couple of years. Um, and comparing it to the private sector, a lot of times it's not as flash um, as um, um, what it can be um, in private practice, but um, the experience in my personal opinion, um, that's something that makes you an all-rounded individual with um, some experience that you cannot have anywhere else um, sitting behind the scenes. Um, but often it's those um, um, who work tirelessly behind the scenes in public service who make history at the end of the day. And that's what public service is all about. It's that service aspect back to your community um, that you're part of. Because at the end of the day, we've got um, in New Zealand, we've got the concept of whānau, which is your family. Um, that is not your family, but um, you know that's your that's your wider um, community. And that is my tribe. That's my whānau, and I need to look after them. 
Um, so that's what public service is all about. And that's the ethos um, behind the public service. And it's it's been incredibly gratifying um, uh, career if um, uh, our lawyers and paralegals are looking um, to make that jump. Uh, it's definitely something uh, worth um, uh, trying out. I always think with, um, you know, public versus private, I think um, public, like you cause waves, like it's it, no um, action is minor. Like it, it really is. Yes. Um, every, everything you do just has such an impact. Um, and it's, it's really important work. Um, so yeah, I think you, I think you make a very convincing argument for anyone that's considering it to just like to go into it. Cause um, if you, if you do want to make it a difference and make a big impact, that's where you can really do it for sure. What advice do you have for those uh, looking into possibly changing jurisdictions? Because you've worked in a few now. Um, do you have any advice for people that are looking to maybe change gears? Absolutely. Um, and as someone who's worked in three, um, I've been admitted to three different um, jurisdictions now um, in Ontario. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, um, I'd say my advice um, in short is if you can dream it, do it. Uh, there's no better time than now, uh, especially because we're seeing globalization as a norm. And this is true uh, despite the fact that COVID has disrupted um, life plans for basically everyone around the globe. But um, pre-COVID, we were seeing more and more opportunities crop up where people can go have some experience working overseas, they come back as an all-rounded individual. You go to another common law jurisdiction, you learn a thing or two, and you come back and apply that to your jurisdiction. Um, there's grants um, that the government um, and private um, and public institutions provide um, in New Zealand, in Canada, in Australia as well, um, for um, students to be able to go do that. Um, it's because it's recognized that globalization is um, a very positive thing at the end of the day. Um, for those people who are looking for greener pastures as to say, whatever it may be for them, um, a change of lifestyle, change of pace, which is what the biggest appeal for people who usually um, move from Canada to um, Australia or New Zealand is, is that change of lifestyle and change of pace. Um, and that's the reason why we have a lot of Canadian lawyers um, in uh, Queensland, uh, New South Wales, especially um, in Australia. Um, my biggest piece of advice, I guess, would be to research, um, research, research, research. Uh, there's so many re resources um, uh, at our disposal in today's day and age. We've got the internet, we've got job forums, we've got um, a whole bunch of resources at our disposal um, that uh, we didn't have 10 years ago. We didn't have 50 years ago, you know? Um, you're not going in blind. Um, I'd say reach out to someone, reach out to, you know, even uh, someone like myself who's who's done that. Um, there's emails um, that can be sent out. Uh, just send a quick email to um, um, someone you've been following um, who's um, basically um, practicing in the same field as you. You want to see how they got to where they are. It's, it's as easy as sending a LinkedIn message um, in today's day and age. And that's something that um, a lot of times, even personally, um, I, I did the same thing uh, back in uh, 2013, where I reached out to um, um, uh, Professor um, Bob Burgess back at, um, uh, at Sir Sanford Fleming, 
um, his son had uh, studied at Bond University in Australia. Uh, mm -hmm. And I reached out to him, uh, Trevor Burgess, who's um, he's a very accomplished lawyer in um, Peterborough, um, from what I understand. Um, yeah, so it was as easy as sending an email, setting up a time to meet up, just talking about um, what their experiences are. Um, and it's it's very daunting at the beginning because you don't know um, what you're going into. You have absolutely no idea what to expect, how the process is going to be. And a lot of times these are all hurdles that we have put up um, these barriers in our mind um, that we can't overcome. But at the same time, when you reach out to that person, it's it's not disturbing them. Uh, that's what I used to think. It's like, oh, there's a, there's a very um, busy person. They're not going to um, they're not going to be emailing me back, but I've learned it's actually flattering to them. You know, they're they're very complimented by hearing that you want to follow in their footsteps, and that's that's what I found. They go above and beyond and help you out, give you resources, um, give you contacts. Uh, Trevor actually got me in touch with the Canadian Law Society um, uh, down at Bond Uni. Um, that's something they they basically made the transition so easy as a Canadian coming to Australia. Um, that you know you feel at home. You never feel like you're um, uh, you're in a totally different jurisdiction. Um, so basically, common law jurisdictions, especially, we've got uh, multiple countries across the globe. You've got the UK um, as well. Um, common law jurisdictions. We're special in that aspect where we are recognized um, by each other to a much higher level than other jurisdictions. Um, so just like we were talking about the uh, National Council of Accreditation uh, for Canada um, for overseas um, um, educated lawyers, say someone coming from um, uh, a different European country um, will be treated a little bit differently than someone who studied in the UK or in Australia, because it's the same um, common law system and principles at the end of the day. Um, we all go back to uh, the UK, um, as you're already aware. Um, so. Um, I'd say research, if that's what you want, um, and you can, um, that's another big part, is um, it's important to not extend your means um, and commit to something that um, that you may not be able to see through. Um, it is a significant time, effort, money, um, expenditure, um, at the end of the day, moving jurisdictions, um, but it's a rewarding experience. You, even if you don't end up settling in the other, other jurisdiction, um, most times, just observing uh, the principles, um, the procedures, uh, and the processes of the courts of, say, for instance, Queensland versus the New Zealand um, district courts, it's very different. It's it's very same, uh, but it's still very different. And you know, I brought I brought a thing or two from um, my time in Queensland over to New Zealand, and that's the same with um, from Canada. So um, I'd say go for it, anyone who's um, thinking about um, looking at different jurisdictions and you're able to um, look into it, research it, find someone who's done the same thing, um, send them a quick message, send them a quick email. Um, they will definitely be able to guide you in the right direction if you're stuck um, somewhere. But yeah, it's it's um, something that I highly recommend. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great advice. Um, and I think to kind of maybe add something to that, I think you know, now that things are so e like, it's so easy to reach out to people, to message people on LinkedIn, 
through networking, you might find out, yes, what you like, but also what, what you don't like, you might have conversations and be That's like, fine. I don't, I don't want to get into that. So, um, I, I, I really think it's, it's wise to have those conversations with people that are where you think you want to be and, and really yes. understand, you know, are, are they happy? <laughs> Is there anything that they would do differently? Um, would they tell you to go this way instead of that way? So I think, you know, there, there's two sides to that. And, and it is really important to do your research, not just through reading, but through through conversations as well. Absolutely. And uh, you bring up a very good point, Rebecca, is um, the because there's two two edges to that sword, as to say, uh, because you've got all these resources at your disposal, like I was saying. But at the same time, you can't put a feeling to the research that you do online. You know, you may find out in your research um, from pictures, from videos, from talking to faculty um, overseas, hey, it, it all sounds great on paper, but at the same time, you know, once you land there, after three months, you're like, eh, it's it's not for me. Yeah. Um, and that's something that um, only someone else who's been in the same situation as you at one point, and then gone through that situation, um, they've made that decision, they've come out of that um, um, situation on the other end. That's something that they can provide you that um, people, um, you know, online reviews and um, and the such cannot provide. And that's why it is very important to, um, um, to get in touch with someone who may be able to guide you um, as to what, um, more importantly, what not to do, um, like you were saying. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely, um, definitely endorse that. Um, <laughs> So you've been working in the legal industry for a while now. If with a wave of a wand, if you could, what would you what would you want to see changed? Now that you brought it up, it's been close to it's coming up to ten years um, um, that I'll be um, having uh, practiced in the legal profession. Um, I've got great respect for the um, legal industry from the get go. Um, and it's with immense pride that I take, um, um, you know, that I'm a part of this industry. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there before I um, say anything about what I would change. Um, if I would change one thing, um, and it was uh, as instantaneous as the um, wave of a wand, um, I'd say the introduction of um, automation. Um, and um, I'd say to achieve enhancements uh, to the administration of justice, um, I'd say my vision would be to incorporate the use of um, and to exploit um, the advancements of technology, um, not only um, uh, not only in the field of criminal justice, but across the board, um, across the law. Um, as I was um, um, saying earlier that um, I've been researching the um, use of artificial intelligence in the law and decision making, um, and if you follow the emergence of uh, things like the dark web, cybercrime, these are all totally new forms of crime that were unknown before. You know, these 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 fields didn't even exist 10, 20 years ago. Mm. This and these fields today have become a very ugly, but also highly intelligent underbelly of society. Um, the extent of harm caused by some of these industries that have cropped up, it's unknown. Basically, the extent of the dark web is absolutely unknown because we don't know what we don't know. Um, and 
as it comes down to it, we can't just rely on hopes that someone slips up um, in order to catch them. So my argument um, is only amplified by the um, disgusting and unfortunate events that uh, recently occurred in uh, Christchurch um, a couple of years ago. And I realize it's a topical um, um, topic at the moment as well um, in um, all across the world, unfortunately, where um, um, in terms of background, um, a terrorist um, live streamed the March 15th uh, terrorist attacks at uh, Linwood Mosque in uh, Christchurch on social media um, in New Zealand, um, where the public watched on in shock and horror. There was absolutely nothing people could do. People were basically helpless. Um, this live feed was not taken down um, till after the um, um, event had happened. It was later revealed that this um, um, this person's online personas, his profiles, there was clear red flags, there's extremist content, there's, um, he was even trying to incite um, other people to conduct um, um, acts of a similar nature. We had all this information already. Um, so, you know, the I believe that the online domain uh, in 2022 and beyond, um, it's a new public domain. You know, the line of reasonable expectation of privacy, it's been greatly blurred. Um, we've got CCTV safety cameras everywhere. We've got traffic surveillance. We've got ring video doorbells, um, you know, at our homes that we've installed. We host live streams. Um, we put our whole life online, basically. And we're happy to agree to the terms and conditions um, without reading through them, rather than not use an app that sells our data, you know, um, this is clear evidence in my opinion that we're happy to give up some privacy, um, or just put a, a turn a blind eye to it to achieve something. Um, my argument is why don't we exploit it for the greater good of society? Um, and one of the good um, quotes that comes to mind uh, is, "In order to beat them, we must be them." You know, so I envisioned this um, law enforcement model of um, covert ethical hackers, analysts, intelligence officers, even better than the dark web, you know, even better um, than the to be offenders. Um, they're one step ahead. We use a crime analysis model where such tragedies are avoided by the use of technology that we already use. You know, um, we've already got it in our pockets to this day. Um, you know, we've already got the automation um, happening these days. We've got um, um, basically, you know, decision-making um, being done by automation. We've got the case, um, business case examples of immigration where um, uh, I'm not sure how Immigration Canada um, operates currently. However, both in Australia and New Zealand, um, we've got um, automated um, bridging visas that are issued if a certain checklist is, um, is met by an applicant, you know, there's no um, clear criminal record, there's no convictions, there's um, no other reasons to believe that this person will overstay, things like that. Um, visas are issues, uh, issued automatically, and sometimes they're usually issued in a matter of, you know, a few minutes. Um, so, you know, this is already happening in society, it's already happening in the public service. Um, we've got autonomous cars, you know, um, we've got, um, um, casinos, we've got other places where all this technology um, is being used 
um, to provide back to society. Obviously, casinos not being a good example, um, but it's it's already in place. Um, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, if we somehow um, make a model where um, this automation is brought into decision making, of course, I'm not talking about um, artificial intelligence only trials um, in courts, but uh, you know the ongoing court um, um, court system backlog. Uh, it's not it's not a Canada only issue. It's a it's a New Zealand issue as well. It's an Australian issue as well. Why can we not use scheduling tools to automate court appearance dates for simple offenses? You yeah. know, we've already got the technology. We we do that every day um, on our phones. You know, for for simple misdemeanors, summary offenses. Um, you know, there's standardized fines. Um, there's the ability to add aggravating factors subtract mitigating factors if it's a simple offense where it's a strict liability and it's a fine only offense um, the fine's able to be calculated by a machine uh, instead of spending um, human um, hours on it we've got automated sentencing right then and there you know of course it's a bit more nuanced than that uh, but that's just for the sake of the example um, but yeah I, I very strongly believe that um, smart technology has a place in the courtroom um, it has a place in the laws of evidence as well, as well as law enforcement. And I think it's about time our industry adopts and embraces the status quo that other industries are um, already um, embracing. Of course, there's some security issues in relation to um, uh, these plants, and that's why um, the research side of things is important. And it's an extended period of research um, um, that needs to be conducted in order to come up with those solutions. Um, it's not a one size fits all as well. Jurisdiction to jurisdiction will differ. But um, um, it's also important to remember that the rule of law um, must be preserved. Um, and that's something that um, both our societies um, uh, are premised on is the rule of law, that no one is above the law, not, not even the lawmakers themselves. And that's very important. Um, it's very important in a democracy and it's important um, from the point of uh, remo removing inherent biases that are present in human beings. Um, that's something where artificial intelligence takes that one step ahead, where we are able to remove that bias from um, a machine by pro programming them um, in order to avoid um, certain characteristics. Um, so that's something that um, um, I believe very passionately about, um, and that's something that I'm... Um, um, actively researching um, um, as well at the time. So that's something that I would um, change with the way of the wand, obviously find this um, um, this magical solution of how we can exploit uh, the advancements of technology that we have seen as a society in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Yeah, I, and I agree with you that technology really can um, make a positive impact in the legal industry. And I think you made a really good point of, you know, of, of course, we'll still have a human element to it. Um, litigation won't be completely automated. And, and I think when some people um, reject this idea of technology, sometimes it, it has, they have two base, like two arguments behind it. And one is like, well, you have to have yes. a human behind it. There has to be a human element. Um, technology can, can, um, have flaws and, you know, there can be technical difficulties. Um, but I think another 
kind of argument behind it is based off of um like we were talking about earlier trust in the government if we do have technology taking over important elements in the legal industry um that gives the government extra power and, and going back to democracy yes. and going back to trusting your government i think that does play a key role in, in making that decision on what technology um will we trust enough to take over you know this or that or you know whatever whatever it may be um because i think what's going on right now at least like from the Can canadian perspective and, and immigration law there is such a backlog i think we're at three million now and it, it, like citizenship applications take 27 months to process um and and it's not so much about um you know these applicants have complicated cases or you know there's a lot going into them it's more about how i don't think we're utilizing technology enough and of course there needs to be a human element to it but now humans are being impacted in a very negative way because we are not taking um you know taking technology and, and using it to the ability that we should be we have these tools they are available um and if we trust the government and we trust you know the research process um and, and understand that there will still be a human element behind it um i i completely agree with you with a wave of a wand it could make such a difference for millions of people yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree um, with that, Rebecca, as well. And that's very disheartening to hear uh, the number of applications that are um, in the queue. That's quite a significant number. That's close to 10% of the population of the country, basically, um, currently. Um, yeah, and a lot of times, especially in immigration, I've found these issues, um, and obviously that's, uh, that's coming um, uh, from an immigrant perspective as well, uh, is being someone who's emigrated to a different country, um, is that it it does leave you in limbo. You know, people need to have that certainty. And there's a recent New Zealand High Court decision um, in relation to that, um, where um, um, it was declared um, by um, uh, their honor that um, uh, someone who's applying for immigration status, for residency status um, to a country, they've got, they they have the right to know that they're going to be dealt with swiftly, that they're going to be dealt with um, in a fair manner um, and not be assessed on technicalities um, in that there is the discretion to um, streamline processing um, for certain applications, but that discretion is entirely up to the immigration officer at the end of the day. And that's where the inherent biases come into play where, you know, um, if you and I are both immigration officers making a decision um, on an application, um, whether or not um, there's exigent circumstances that exist um, for an application, you and I will make totally different decisions sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's those are both reasonable decisions mm -hmm. um, because that human element comes into play. I can take into account certain other things that you may not have. And that's where um, um, the use of artificial intelligence um, can come into play is to negate those inherent biases um, mm -hmm. and make the process fair and equitable for everyone. Um, why should someone who's in the exact same circumstances as someone else, um, who's been treated a certain way, 
be treated different by the government. Mm -hmm. I don't see um, I don't see a reason why this should be. Um, and that's where um, um, that's where the balancing act comes into play, where you've got the um, um, you've got the issue with um, uh, the rights of privacy being breached um, all the time at this stage because of the um, uh, data breaches by um, by servers and by um, different organizations around the globe. We see that on a daily basis, unfortunately, um, where people's um, private information is leaked. And that's that's going to be the same uh, privacy impact analysis that the government will have to um, um, undertake. And that's something that I learned uh, during my studies in um, uh, e-governance um, um, while I did uh, my public policy um, studies um, in New Zealand, um, is that e-government exists in um, the European Union in uh, quite a few countries. Um, everything, um, every dealing with the government um, by members of the public is online or on the internet. Um, you know, it can be accessed by the means of an app um, and you've got an app for government services basically. Um, but um, yeah, that's, that's something that is um, um, a bigger question than um, anything we can solve during this podcast today. Uh, a very balancing act. Um, it's a very, um, uh, very delicate balance of that, where um, you've got the individual's rights to privacy and the obligation of um, um, the government as holders of the data um, to um, to basically hold that data in a manner that is consistent with principles um, that are given not only by domestic legislation uh, but also by international law. So, you know, one of these data breaches, say immigration, um, citizenship, immigration Canada or immigration New Zealand, um, say hypothetically, there's a data breach that would have potential um, devastating consequences um, for not only everyone involved um, um, whose data has been breached, but also for the organizations themselves. So it's something that um, is not just um, um, a um, one-stop shop um, as to say, um, but it's something that is a long-term systematic um, thinking that needs to be um, um, approached um, in this regard. Um, obviously, a lot of stakeholder analysis, a lot of research needs to be done into the proper way of handling uh, such information. Um, but yeah, the potential is definitely there. Um, and I think we will, um, I'm quite confident that we will see um, these changes coming into play. Um, quite soon. So last question. I feel like the, I, I feel like this uh, conversation has gone by really quickly, but we're at the last question. What one piece of advice would you give your 18 year old self? Uh, thank you. I, I did notice that. Um, and I had a um, had a deep think about that as well. Um, I'd say um, uh, if I had to give one piece of advice, uh, send it back in a time travel machine uh, to myself when I was 18, I'd say I'd say hard work beats talent. Um, it's a quote, um, and I um, I really like that quote. Uh, I've got it. I've got a mug with that quote as well for my morning coffee um, to remind me of that every day. Um, yeah, I'd say uh, the piece of advice I'd say is it'll it'll work out the way it's supposed to. Just keep at it. Um, I used to suffer from self confidence issues and wasn't the best student. My marks weren't the greatest in high school. Um, even like, you know, uh, speaking in front of people, um, that limelight, that feeling of everyone watching, um, it was a feeling of embarrassment for myself. And it was something that um, um, I never got used to until um, I basically forced myself 
um, into the position. Um, the um, nowadays it's uh, it's coming to light as well that a lot of people suffer from the imposter syndrome, as it's called. Um, it's very commonplace, especially um, in the legal profession, um, where you're constantly um, shoved into situations where you have to present before people, where people are looking up to you. Uh, people are relying on your arguments, things like that, and you don't feel confident enough in yourself. You feel like a, um, an imposter. Um, so basically what I've learned over time is that if you work hard, of course, you've got to play hard too on the side, but you work for the greater good of your community. Um, you just keep going. You know, uh, There's nothing you cannot do at the end of the day um, that your colleague who was a born talent as to say, and always scored A pluses in law school can. So, you know, it it doesn't mean that it's the end of the road, um, is what I'm trying to get at, is um, that hard work um, will always beat um, talent without any action, um, basically. So if you keep at it, if you've got the drive, um, that drive will get you places um, at the end of the day. And um, you just need to um, see out those uh, rough patches on the road of life. It is um, it is a long one, but it's also a short one at the same time. Um, and what um, we can achieve with hard work is um, um, there's no limit to it. Um, at the end of the day, the, they say the sky is the limit, but um, uh, but I um, recently um, got into space law as well. And I've learned that the sky is not the limit, you know? Um, we're, we're sending lunar missions now and we may end up on Mars you know so um we'll definitely need lawyers there yeah i think i think that's great advice for 18 year old aj i think that really is yeah <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me today just thank you for your very well thought out answers um i know you know there is a lot to discuss when i say things like well tell me about your educational journey or, or your career um but i think you answered these questions really well so thank you Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to watch these episodes, you can see them on YouTube or you can listen to them wherever you listen to your other podcasts. We are now on Apple Podcasts, which is really exciting. Uh, so tune in again next week for another episode of the Applicant Podcast. And thanks again for your support. Bye now.